Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together with you. I want to point out one thing that we have on the welcome table now. I think we had these last week, but just want to point out this sermon notes for kids sheet. So kids, if you want to be helped in taking notes during the sermon, this sheet's going to be really helpful just in, in guiding and directing you to what things to particularly pay attention to in our time together uh, during the sermon. So I encourage you all to use this if it helps you to pay more attention to God's word and to draw out of it what God has for us in it. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us again briefly, and then we will look at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have spoken in your word. We pray that you would enable us by your spirit to hear all that you are saying to us today and to stand in amazement of your wisdom and your sovereign power and of the salvation that you have made possible for the entire world through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to lay hold of that salvation today through faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, if you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on pages 31 and 32. If you don't have a Bible of your own, I want to encourage you to take the copy that we provided as a gift from us to you. I want to encourage you to turn to the passage and follow along when I read it for us in a few moments, and I want to encourage you to keep the passage open in front of you throughout our time, because we're going to be looking at details in the passage over the course of the entire sermon. In Genesis chapter 37, we begin the story of Joseph and his brothers, and that story will take us through the rest of the book of Genesis. Uh, the, the narrative of Joseph is one of the most well-known and powerful stories in the entire Old Testament. And its power as a story, as a narrative, is really directly proportional to its importance in the unfolding story of redemption. I want you to think back with me to Genesis 15, when God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the sand of the sea, and that they would inhabit the promised land of Canaan. But before that would happen, God also promised that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would be sojourners in a foreign land where they would become slaves and be afflicted for 400 years, after which time God would bring judgment on that nation, Egypt, and bring his people out with great possessions. And in Genesis 37, we learn how the nation of Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place. But that's not the only reason this story is important. It's also important because of how clearly it foreshadows the way in which God would save sinners through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. When we read the Old Testament, we need to remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, right? After his resurrection, 
he appeared to two of his disciples. And these disciples were mystified by the fact that Jesus had been betrayed and crucified. And and how did Jesus respond to them? He reprimanded them. Right? Haven't you read the Old Testament? How could you not understand that the Christ would be betrayed by his own and killed and then three days later rise again? And then what does he get, what does he do? He goes on to start with Moses, the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then he interprets everything in the scriptures concerning him. And I assume that when he got to the story of Joseph, a big old smile broke out on his face and a twinkling entered into his eye as he prepared to show them all the ways that the story of Joseph and Genesis 37 in particular pointed forward to him. In my opinion, no other story in the Old Testament sheds more light on the various aspects and events of the gospel than the story of Joseph. It is the gospel in miniature, as I hope you see this morning. And many of those aspects and events of the gospel are foreshadowed here in chapter 37. And contained within this glorious foreshadowing of the gospel is a powerful message for God's people. Perhaps one of the most important truths we need to be reminded of and live in light of as we journey together through a fallen world towards a land that God has promised to us. And we'll see how this passage points forward to Christ and we'll see what that message is for us in Christ. So let's turn to Genesis 37 now. I want you to go ahead and follow along as I read the text for us. This is God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, His father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. 
Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. If you're taking notes, the main lesson that we should take away from Genesis 37 is that God is able to use human evil to bring about the salvation of the world. God is able to use human evil to bring about the salvation of the world. What we're gonna do with the rest of our time is walk through the passage. I'm just gonna explain it as I go. We'll walk through the entire chapter. Then we're gonna consider how this passage is fulfilled in Christ 
and then we'll consider how God's sovereign power to even use human evil to bring about the salvation of the world should change how you and I live in the week to come. So let's go ahead and take a look at the text. Verse two tells us, these are the generations of Jacob. This final section of Genesis will be about Jacob's descendants, his generations, namely his sons, and more specifically, one of his sons, Joseph. Uh, We learn in verse two, you can just continue looking with me at these verses as I call them out. We learn in verse two that Joseph is a shepherd. He's out pasturing the flock with his brothers, and apparently their behavior is unsavory enough that Joseph brings a bad report of their behavior to Israel, that is Jacob. You'll remember in previous chapters, God gave Jacob a new name, which is Israel, so you're going to both names used in the chapter. You'll hear me refer to Israel and to Jacob. I'm referring to the same person. It's Joseph's father. And in verse three, we learn that Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. He is unfortunately and ironically repeating the sin of his own father Isaac, who loved Israel's brother Esau more than him. Israel loves Joseph more than his brothers, and out of his love for him, he made him a robe of many colors, perhaps the most famous article of clothing in the entire Bible, right? Joseph's robe of many colors. The exact meaning, however, of robe of many colors is actually uncertain. It could also mean robe of long sleeves. I have to admit, though, I'm partial to robe of many colors or Joseph's technicolor multicolored robe, so we'll go with that. But regardless of the exact meaning of what that phrase means, many colored robe or long sleeve robe, one thing seems clear, and that is that the robe designates him not only as his father's beloved son, but also as a royal figure. Interestingly, the only other time this phrase appears about a robe in the Old Testament, it's in reference to robes worn by royalty. The robe designates him as the beloved royal son. And unsurprisingly, we're told that his brothers hated him because their father loved him more than them. And they they couldn't even speak peacefully him. That means they couldn't even bring themselves as he approached whenever they interacted him during the day, they couldn't even bring themselves to look him in the eye and say without any malice in their hearts, shalom, peace brother, peace be upon you. They couldn't even speak peacefully to them. I wonder if you've ever had somebody like that in your life that like you have so much anger or frustration towards them that when you get around them, you just look the other way. I just can't even acknowledge this person. That's how much they hated Joseph. But that deep hatred grows deeper still. Look at verse five. Joseph has a dream. And when he tells his brothers about it, they hate him even more. That the robe designates him as a royal figure is apparently borne out by his dreams. In the first dream, they're all binding sheaves in the field. Real quick, kids. Can any of you tell me what a sheave is? Adam? 
It's a bundle of wheat. That's right. It's a bundle of wheat. So uh, when farmers would have been out in the field gathering the wheat, they would bind it into bundles of sheaves. It's a bundle of stalks of grain. And Joseph says his sheaf arose and stood upright, and all their sheaves gathered around it and bowed to his sheaf. Upon hearing the dream, his brothers are gobsmacked, right? Are you saying you're going to rule over us? Are you indeed to reign over us as king? After the hearing the dream, they hated him even more. You just see the repetition of their hatred for him, emphasized in these early verses. Now, the dream's interesting, right? Joseph and his brothers are shepherds. A more natural dream would have been for Joseph to say, we were out in the field shepherding the flock, and your sheep bowed down to my sheep. Or your shepherd's staffs bow down to my shepherd's staffs. But instead, his dream is about sheaves of grain. And I think we're already seeing the foreshadowing of the climax of the story of Joseph when in the context of searching for grain, his brothers come to Egypt and do eventually bow down to him. Then he has another dream. Look at verse 9. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Right, he tells his father, and his father is dumbfounded and rebukes him. What, what are you talking about, son? Do you think me and your mom and your brothers are gonna bow down to you? What, what is wrong with you? Right, it's, a, it's an astonishing dream if you consider it. His dream seems to portray him as the Lord of all creation, Notice he doesn't say the sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to my star. No, he says the sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to me as though he himself will receive worship from all creation. Unsurprisingly, again, in response, his brothers are filled with jealousy. Now, I I, I assume you have experienced jealousy at some point in your life tugging on the heart, you get really upset when somebody else has something you want, it's really easy to, to import our type of jealousy into what, what they are experiencing. That's not the same type of jealousy his brothers are experiencing. They are not just having a minor struggly, struggle with desiring what their brother has. They are seething with jealousy, seething with murderous hatred for their brother. All the while, Jacob, after hearing the and rebuking his son, is kind of internally intrigued by it. Verse 11 says, he kept the saying in mind, as though throughout his days he would think back on this. What is the Lord doing in this dream? What, what, what did the Lord mean by that dream he gave, he gave to Joseph? We're going to consider in a moment how Joseph's brothers acted on their hatred and jealousy. But I want to ask the question first, What are we to make of Joseph's actions thus far? What are we to make of Joseph bringing a bad report home of his brothers and then telling his family he's going to rule over them? It's exceedingly common for Joseph's actions to be interpreted as the actions of a sinful, spoiled, little, arrogant brat who in time, over the course of his life, is purified by the struggles he experiences later down the road. But I don't think that is how Moses 
intends us to interpret his actions. When you take a step back and you read the narrative of Joseph as a whole, I think you see that Moses intends us to see a man whose character is spotless, blameless, and righteous. I want you to consider briefly with me the entire landscape of Joseph's character as we look forward uh, to what is to come. In the rest of the chapter, we'll see in Genesis 37, he is entirely silent. He is thrown into a pit, and we never hear a peep out of him. Not at all. He ends up in Egypt as a slave to Potiphar, and he's so good at his job that Potiphar puts him in charge of everything. Like, man, you, you know what you're doing. I'm going to give you charge over everything in my house. Then Potiphar's wife is attracted to him, and he has the opportunity to do something scandalous with her, but he flees temptation, righteously flees temptation. Then he is wrongfully charged with a crime, and he's thrown in prison where he never complains once. And he was such a good prisoner that the head of the prison puts him in charge of all the prisoners. Then he interprets two dreams for two prisoners. Those dreams come true in their lives. One of the prisoners is released. He tells Joseph he'll make sure Joseph gets out of prison, but then he completely forgets about Joseph. And Joseph responds by still not complaining. He appears as a man who is completely content as he waits for God to act. He's eventually released, rises to Pharaoh's right hand, wisely oversees the distribution of grain during a famine, saving countless lives. Then when he finally meets his brothers, he is not full of vindictive rage. He instead forgives them entirely. The man is impeccable. And that's the picture that I think Moses intends to paint from the very beginning. When Joseph delivers the bad report to his father, Moses wants us to see him as a good shepherd. His delivery of a bad report is strikingly similar to when Eli the priest in 1 Samuel receives a bad report of the very evil and heinous things his sons were doing at the tabernacle. And the things that they were doing were heinous. In a similar way, I think Moses wants us to see Joseph as genuinely concerned about the evil things his brothers were doing. I mean, let's not forget who these men are and what they're capable of. They've already murdered all the men of Shechem and plundered their goods in cold blood, right? I don't think Joseph is reporting back to his father that my brothers are being mean to me. Dad, you really need to stop them from picking on me. I think they are doing evil. And Joseph is concerned about the evil they're doing. And he's not only concerned about evil. In the dreams, I think you see that he's concerned about honestly and truthfully declaring what God had revealed to him about who he was. Though it doesn't say it in here, say it here, it is a given in Scripture that dreams like these come from the Lord. It would be another thing if if Joseph were making up the dreams or exaggerating the dreams, but he wasn't. God revealed to him that he would be ruler, and he is simply telling his family who God said he would be. I think Moses wants us to see him as the beloved son, the, the righteous and royal good shepherd whom God had chosen to exalt over his brothers, and in response, his brothers hated him for it. And that hatred pours out in the rest of the chapter. 
Joseph is sent by his father to visit his brothers while they're pasturing the flock. His brothers see him coming from a distance. They recognize the robe and immediately come up with a plan to kill him. Look at verse 20. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. You can feel their animosity. Let's just remember they don't have binoculars. They're not spotting him coming from miles away. They perhaps recognize the robe from what? 500 yards is like the best that you can spot somebody and recognize, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's the spot, that's the robe of many colors and that, that's Joseph. In the time it took Joseph to close the distance of 500 yards, they had already come up with a plot to murder him. So deep was their animosity towards him. They think that if they kill him, his dreams will die with him. Boy, were they wrong. The oldest brother Reuben then convinces them not to kill him, just to throw him into a pit. Look at verse 24. And there they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They may have decided not to kill him, but in the heat of the day with no water, he's gonna die anyway. And then notice what they do. Verse 25. They sat down to eat. They are just as heartless, ruthless, and cold-blooded as they were in Shechem. And they're apparently greedy as well. Look at Judah. Judah's like, this is a waste. Might as well make some money off of him. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelite traders who are headed our way, right? You might say Judah has some semblance of a conscience, not wanting to kill his own brother, but selling him into slavery isn't much of an upgrade in the ancient Near East. You might say that murder and being sold into slavery are basically one in the same. He's gonna die anyway. There's no way he's coming back from it. I think it's safe to assume they, they, all, I think it's safe to assume that soon they all thought he would die regardless. So they pull him out of the pit. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And just like that, Joseph is taken to Egypt. Reuben apparently wasn't around when Joseph was sold. He comes back to the pit thinking he'd be able to rescue him. He finds the pit empty goes to his brothers, and together they come up with a plan to lie to their father. Right, they dip Joseph's rud in the blood of a, robe in the blood of a goat, sees the robe, assumes his son is dead, is utterly overcome with grief, refuses to be comforted, and weeps inconsolably. Irony's thick, painful, right? The man who lied to his own father using robes made out of goatskins is lie to his sons using a robe dipped in goat's blood. Joseph's brothers think Joseph is, for all intents and purposes, dead. There is no way they think they will ever see him again. But look at verse 36 at how the chapter ends. Meanwhile, you just feel it. If you're, if you're in a movie, you see this drama occurring in this scene. No way Joseph is coming back. Even though, even though we're, we're lying to our father, he is actually still alive, but he's being sold into slavery in Egypt. He's dead. We're never going to see him again. Cut scene. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Joseph arrives at Potiphar's home, already foreshadowing what's going to happen in his own life. They all might think he's dead, but Joseph is alive. And God is using their evil actions to bring about 
the salvation of the world. You see, we can't rightly interpret this chapter in isolation from the rest of Joseph's narrative. We have to see what God is doing here. Not only is he providentially using the sin of Joseph's brothers to fulfill his promise that Abraham's descendants would end up as slaves in a foreign land, he's using the evil actions of Joseph's brothers to bring physical salvation to the world. Their evil actions are what send Joseph to Egypt where he will soon become the second most powerful ruler in all of Egypt and will oversee the distribution of grain in the midst of a crushing famine that God sent on the world and people from all over the world, from every nation and tribe and tongue will come to Joseph to be fed by his grain, including his very own brothers who travel to Egypt to get grain in the famine. They don't recognize Joseph when they see him, but he recognizes them. He finally discloses his identity and they are terrified because they think he's going to kill them, but he instead forgives them. And what does he say to them? It's a central point of the entire narrative of Joseph. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many should be saved. God uses the evil actions of Joseph's brothers to bring about the physical salvation of the world. And in this, we see how clearly Genesis 37 is fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as God providentially used the evil actions of Joseph's brothers to bring about the physical salvation of the world, giving grain to those who were in the midst of a famine, so he providentially used the evil actions of Jesus' brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews, to bring about the salvation of the world from sin. But this chapter doesn't just foreshadow the gospel in general kind of vague outline ways, but in numerous hyper-specific and nuanced ways. Let me consider how the person of Christ is foreshadowed in this chapter. Jesus is the true good shepherd who reports on the evil actions of the shepherds of Israel, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Jesus is the Truly beloved son of the father, the one who was truly robed with royal authority and was truly righteous in all his ways. Not only that, but Jesus received far greater revelations than Joseph about how he would rule over the people of Israel. Think of what Jesus says in Mark 14 when the chief priest asked him if he was Christ. How does he respond? I am, and you will see me, the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And how did they respond? They hated him, gnashed their teeth, tore their garments, spit on him and slapped him. Just like Joseph was rebuked by his parents for his dreams. So Jesus was rebuked by his family for his teachings. They called him a madman for the things he was saying. Yet, just like Jacob kept Joseph's dreams in mind, So Mary kept Jesus' unique wisdom as a child in mind. The same phrase is used. Just like Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers and his brothers wanted to kill him, so Jesus was sent to his own and his own did not receive him. The chief priests and scribes, like Joseph's brothers, 
plotted to kill Jesus. Joseph was sold for silver. Jesus was sold for silver. Joseph was stripped of his robe. Jesus was stripped of his tunic. Joseph was cast into a pit. Jesus was nailed to a cross. Joseph was lifted from the pit. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Joseph was raised to the right hand of power in Egypt. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the glory on high. Joseph was the physical savior of the world by giving grain to those in need. Jesus, the true savior of the world, gave bread from heaven to those in need. Jesus is the true fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. What does Paul say? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All people and all creation, sun, moon, and stars bow down to the risen Christ as the reigning ruler of all creation. Not just the people of Israel, but the people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Our sheaves bow down to him. He is the true sheep. He is the true bread from heaven. He is the true Lord of all creation who calls the sun, moon, and stars into existence by his very own word. He is the savior of the world. Remember again what Joseph's brothers said. Come now. Let's kill him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. That if they killed the dreamer, his dreams would die with him. But in seeking to destroy him and his dreams, they became the instruments by which his dreams came true. In the same way, the chief priests and Pharisees and scribes put Jesus to death on the cross to prove this man is not the son of God. But in doing so, they became the instruments by which his identity as the Son of God was revealed to the world. The foreshadowing doesn't even stop there. We have to see, though, that it was through Joseph's brother's rejection of Joseph, through the Jews' rejection of Joseph, his own brothers, that salvation came to the nations. God providentially used their rejection of Joseph to bring salvation to the world. In the same way, God ordained that Jesus would be sent first to his Jewish brothers and their rejection and crucifixion of him would lead to salvation for the Gentiles. That, that is you and me, friends. Paul says in Romans 11, did Israel stumble that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass of killing Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Paul teaches elsewhere in Romans that after the fullness of Gentiles comes in, there will be a turning to Jesus as Savior among the Jews. And what, what happens in the story of Joseph? He becomes the Savior of the nations, after which time his Jewish brothers come to him for grain, and when his identity is revealed, they repent, and he forgives them. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Friends, I, you, I, like you, I, I could give you arguments for why this is God's word. Or I could just tell you to read it and be amazed and astounded at what God is doing in all of history. To bring glory to his son, Jesus Christ. You can't make this up. 
No human being, by his own power and wisdom, could write a story by himself that is this intricate and amazing through and through, let alone 60 different authors over thousands of years all telling the same story. Praise be to the Messiah, to the serpent crushing seed of the woman, to the Savior of the world who is bread from heaven, who is water from a rock, who is the one that his own brothers rejected, yet rose from the dead to bring salvation to the ends of the earth and to forgive his own people who turned to him in faith. That is a message being proclaimed in this chapter. Our God reigns, y'all. His will cannot be thwarted. His purposes cannot be denied. His promises cannot be foiled or frustrated. Even human evil is made subservient to his purposes. And those who seek to do harm to his promises or his people will themselves become the instruments by which his promises are fulfilled and his people are blessed. And that is a reality that we need to be reminded of regularly. We need to be reminded of God's providence. We need to be reminded of his sovereign power to make all things subservient to his ultimate purposes. There are three aspects of his sovereign power that I want to highlight that if we reflect on and take to heart should change how we live in the days to come. The first thing I want you to notice about God's sovereign power in this chapter is his sovereign power over small and seemingly insignificant circumstances. You have to be reminded at all times as a Christian, at all times as a Christian, as hard as it may be to understand that nothing happens by chance. We like to talk about chance. There is no chance in God's world. Everything, chance is a word that we use to say, I don't get it. But Christians say, I don't get it, but I trust it has a purpose because we know it has a purpose. All things happen according to God's purposes. Consider, chapter 37, consider Joseph's chance encounter with the man in Shechem as he's wandering in the fields. If he doesn't encounter that man, he doesn't end up going to Dothan. And if he doesn't end up going to Dothan, he doesn't end up in Egypt. Or consider the chance arrival of the Midianite merchants. How many things had to come together in the lives of those merchants? How many events had to connect together over the, over the space of, of time, over the span of time, in order to cause all of them to come together in that group, that day, at that time, and across past, at that moment, with Joseph's brothers, who just so happened to have Joseph in the pit? Nothing happens by chance. If they don't arrive, Reuben likely returns and finds Joseph in the pit where he pulls him from the pit and restores him to his father. And yet over the small and seemingly insignificant circumstances, God sovereignly reigns. And these small and insignificant circumstances serve to bring about the fulfillment of God's purposes for Joseph, Jacob, Joseph's brothers, and the world. Friends, nothing in your life happens by chance. Nothing in your life is meaningless. From spilled milk to kids melting down in the grocery store 
to traffic jams, to homework assignments, to delayed shipments, and every other seemingly small, insignificant, and meaningless experience in life. Nothing happens by chance in God's world. Now, I want to be clear. I can't begin to tell you what the meaning of those things is in your life, nor can I tell you how God is specifically using those things in your life any more than I would have been able to tell Joseph what the meaning of, uh, was of the seemingly insignificant things that happened in his life. It's not until the end of Joseph's story that we can look back and see, oh, this is how God used that seemingly small thing to fulfill his purposes to Joseph. And the same holds true with us. We likely won't see or understand why certain seemingly small and insignificant things happen while we're in the midst of life. But we can be certain that in the end, we will look back and see that God was truly working all Things, not just the big things, but the seemingly small and insignificant things included together for the good of all who are called according to his purposes. So my basic encouragement for you from that is that in the midst of the mundane and the seemingly meaningless, trivial experiences that we have each and every day, keep believing that God is at work to fulfill his promises to you in Christ Jesus, whether you understand it or not, because he is. And rest in the comfort of knowing that there isn't a second of the day when God isn't sovereignly guiding, directing, and fulfilling his promises to you in Christ. The second thing I want to point out from this passage is that God is sovereign over sin. He is never guilty of sin. On that, scripture is entirely clear. The scripture is also entirely clear that he is so sovereign and free that he is able to intend good and bring about good in and through the very same acts where mankind intends evil. One of the clearest expressions of that reality is Genesis 37 and the developing story of Joseph. At the very same time that Joseph's brothers were sinning, God was accomplishing his purposes and fulfilling his promises. Friends, there is no sin that you and I will experience from outside of us, that that another person might commit against us, that God isn't sovereign over. And that, that, that extends also to heinous and grievous sins. If you have been sinned against in terrible ways, I want you to look to God's sovereign power to use what mankind intends for evil to work good for you and to eventually bring about the fulfillment of his promises in your life, as difficult as those sins may have been to experience. There is no sin that you and I will ever experience that is somehow beyond God's power, whether we're sinned against by family members or neighbors or sinfully persecuted by nations and governments. It does not matter. God reigns over the sinful actions of mankind and can use evil to bring about ultimate good for his people. Case in point, Joseph and his brothers. Or later in Israel's history, when Pharaoh persecutes God's people. The more he persecuted them, the more they multiplied and spread. Or the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, through which the fountain of salvation to the world. Or the persecution of the early church, which had the uh, tangential blessing of causing the gospel to spread further and wider than it had before. It's the knowledge of God's sovereignty over sin and his power to bring good from evil that should grow in, hit, in, out, in us, in his people, a steadfastness of 
spirit. Bad things will happen in life. People will sin against you. But knowing that God reigns over sin and is able to work through sin to bring about his purposes in each of our lives should keep us from fearing being sinned against. I'm not saying you have to ask for it, but it should keep us from fearing being sinned against or flying off the handle in response to sin. Instead, it should increase in us a spirit of steadfast trust and a willingness to forgive just as it did in Joseph's life. Do you notice that through his story, it seems that he knows from the very beginning that God is using this to bring about good for the salvation of the world. And his understanding of God's sovereign power to be working in the midst of his suffering enables him to be content in prison, to be content when he's wrongfully charged with crime, and then to forgive the very brothers who threw him into the pit, leaving him for dead, and that sold him into slavery. It is that type of spirit that should grow in us as we recognize God's sovereign power over the sins of others towards us. Friend, do you notice that steadfastness of spirit growing in you? That ability to remain content in the midst of affliction, in the midst of being sinned against by others, and even more than that, being able to forgive others, recognizing that even through this situation, what you have just done to me, brother, it will serve to bring about God's purposes in my life and his promises to me in Christ, and to you as well. But God isn't just sovereign over other people's sins towards us. He, he's also sovereign over his own people's sins. Jacob is one of God's people, and yet Jacob still struggles with sin. He sinfully shows favoritism to Joseph, and his sin of favoritism leads to his brothers, Joseph's brothers, hating and eventually selling Joseph into slavery, and yet God sovereignly ruled over Jacob's sin to bring about the fulfillment of his purpose in Jacob's life and their family's life. See, I bought a pair of running shoes off of Zappos, uh, the website, a while back, and on the website, they were advertising this program for runners where you could purchase running shoes, and you could use them when you got them. You could use them for a couple weeks or so, and then if you didn't like them after using them a lot, you could still return them and get your money back if you didn't like them. So I bought a pair, stoked, like, I'm secure. Man, if I don't like these shoes, I'm getting my money back no matter what. Stoked that I could have confidence that if they didn't work, I could send them back. What I didn't do, though, was read the fine print. The program only applied to certain brands of shoes, of which mine were not listed. And so you can understand how discouraged I was to find this amazing program didn't apply to my shoes. Friends, that, that program is not what God's sovereign power over your sin is like. There is no fine print that says that his sovereign power and mercy don't extend to certain sins you might commit as a believer, right? It extends over all sins that you might commit as a believer. He is gonna work his purposes and bring about the fulfillment of his promises to you even as you and I continue to struggle with sin for the kids and teens. My hope is that you find great encouragement in that reality because there will be seasons in your life if you follow Jesus where struggles with sin are just more acute than others. And what's gonna happen in those seasons is that Satan is gonna tempt you to think that you're, not, that you're a failure. He's gonna cast aspersions at you, shoot fiery darts at you. He's gonna tempt you to believe that God doesn't love you 
and that somehow you've outsinned God's promises to you. But that will never be the case. That will never be the case for you if you are in Christ. Now, that reality is never to be used as an excuse to sin or to justify sin, but instead to direct us to the rest, spiritual rest that we have in Christ and the comfort that is ours through his ongoing intercession on our behalf and the knowledge that Jesus has taken away our condemnation from sin and is leading us into his perfect presence where sin will one day be no more. And finally, briefly, I want you to see from Genesis 37 that God is sovereign over sorrow and suffering. Do you notice? Jacob spends years thinking his son is dead. His brothers never come back and say, Dad, we were lying. He's actually alive. Let's go get him. He spends years mourning the loss of his son. Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt, ends up in prison, ends up in prison for a long time. God works in in, in mysterious ways through their lives, but we need to recognize that God is sovereign over their sorrow and their suffering. God was sovereign over Jacob's sorrow and suffering, and in the same way, he is sovereign over our suffering, and through it, is accomplishing his purposes in our lives. Friends, we just need to recognize we can subtly believe, even if we've been Christians for a long time, that because I'm a Christian, life is gonna go go good for me. But we just don't have any reason to believe that from scripture. We live in a fallen world. God has promised that it's actually through many trials and tribulations that we will enter God's kingdom. Sorrow and suffering are part of the path of following Jesus. We walk with the good shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. And in the valley of the shadow of death, sorrow and suffering are a common experience. And if you follow Jesus, there may be prolonged seasons where you suffer, where you mourn, where you're sorry, you're unable to be comforted as Jacob was unable to be comforted. But it's then that you need to realize that your story isn't over. I don't know who said it. I heard Leah say it. I think she was quoting somebody else. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Because in the end, it will all be okay. Grief and sorrow drive us to the cross. They drive us to see that our, our own Savior suffered in ways that we cannot imagine. And yet he was resurrected from the dead. And so too will we, being in Christ, experience that glorious resurrection from the dead. Where? Sin and suffering will be no more. Then God, as a refuge and a fortress, will be seen to perfectly protect his people for all time. No more will we experience sorrow from sin and suffering. One of my favorite illustrations of this reality as we close comes from D.L. Moody, a pastor in the mid-20th century, a very well-known pastor and preacher, and he I've shared this illustration before. He went to meet a member of his church. She was doing knitting. What's the thing where you like knit, but it's like actually a picture? What's that called? What is it? Cross stitch. Thank you for helping me out. She was doing cross stitch. And she was 
building out this picture, whatever it was, and he went, went over to see her to sit with her at her house and to talk to her about following Jesus. And at some point during the course of their conversation, her cross stitch falls on the ground and it falls face down. And he looks at it and he's like, what is that thing you are knitting? It looks like a mess. D.L. Moody, how could you say that to me? You're looking at it upside down. You need to look at it right side up. She flips it over, shows him the front. We're like, oh yeah, that's the actual cross stitch. Now, now I can see what's going on. And he says to her, sister, you have been complaining about your sufferings and sorrows. You're looking at things the wrong way up. You need to go to the end and see it from God's perspective. You always need to live as a Christian mentally at the end, looking back on life, recognizing where you're going and knowing that now I can't see it now, but one day I will see what all these struggles and sufferings and the sins committed against me and by me were for and how God through it all, was faithful. He sovereignly worked over human evil to bring about the fulfillment of his plan of salvation. He sovereignly works over evil and sin and suffering to bring about the fulfillment of his purposes to us. And one of our close family friends said it well. She said, if God holds everything, then he holds what you're experiencing now. Friend, he holds you, he has you. And by his sovereign power, he will bring you to be with him where he is. And now we await that day, knowing that whatever anyone else might intend against us for evil, God will intend it for our good and for his eternal glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to trust in your sovereign power. We rejoice knowing that you are sovereign over all things and you are working all things together for our good. Help us to grasp that truth more deeply today and to walk by faith in you in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.